Heavenly Father, this morning we just celebrate your goodness, your presence. We thank you, O God, for the truths of your word. We pray, God, that our hearts might be awakened, Lord, that you are the one who searches hearts and minds. And today we come in reverent awe. We come in a surrendered sense of humility, God. We pray that out of our hearts there may flow a gift to you, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. And we just pray that as we come to your word, it again may speak into our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like us to turn to the word of the Lord here today. And the scripture that I wanted to read from has already been read, which is good. It's out of the book of Revelation. As indeed today we're going to be looking at the whole theme of the Lamb of God. We've been looking over the last few weeks, certainly in these Sunday mornings, around the whole theme of the cross of Christ. And what does that mean? But when we look at that theme, we have to understand that the cross is the foundation The follow-through is the resurrection, and those two things together make up God's amazing act and gift of salvation for us. So as we come to the word of the Lord here this morning, let us be mindful of the truth of God's word, and let's be very much not only enthused by the word of God, but also challenged to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. So therefore, the passage that I wanted to read is found here in the book of Revelation and chapter 5 initially, and then we're moving on to chapter 6. Revelation 5, reading from verse 1 through to verse 8. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed or conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We move to chapter 6 from verse 15 onwards down to verse 17, where we have the record of the opening of what would be the sixth seal on this scroll. And then it says these words. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These are incredible words, aren't they? But what we have here is, as chapter 1 and verse 1 says, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the overarching theme of the book. It is not the devil, the false prophet, the antichrist, the beast. It's not even about angels or elders. It is about Jesus Christ. The apocalypse is the unveiling, the pulling back of the curtains to reveal the one who is at the centre of history. He is the one who is at the centre of the throne of God around him. Are the elders and the angels, they worship and they honour and they pay tribute to him. The Lamb of God is at the heart of creation itself. It is not the enemy himself who is centre stage, it is the Lord himself. As both the Lamb of God, our suffering servant, as well as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the splendid king. And those two pictures are interwoven into the whole of the fabric of the book of Revelation. The Lamb and the Lion. There are many other titles that John received of the Lord, but those are the two main pictures that we have in terms of the revelation of God's will and purpose. So it is the unveiling of Christ. Now it's important to understand that because if you read a lot of commentaries and a lot of books on the book of Revelation, most of them, if not all of them, will very often focus, yes, they will touch upon the centrality of Christ, but take you down all sorts of rabbit trails which actually diminish and almost overshadow the centrality of Christ. It is all about him. In chapter 1, he is revealed as the priest who walked amongst the candlesticks. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, the prophet of God who brings the word of the Lord to seven churches. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have the king who is arrayed in glory. And then chapter 6 through to 22, we have the judge. So it's all about the Lord. It's all about the coming of the kingdom. And again, as we understand anything about the book of Revelation... Chapter 1 starts in heaven, and then we move to earth in chapter 2 and 3 with the seven churches. Chapter 4 and 5, we're back in heaven again, and then chapter 6 through to 22, we're back on earth. Now, there are different aspects to which the kingdom unfolds, but actually everything is moving towards a glorious finale. And it is the Lord himself who is the Lord of history, that history is his story, it is all about the work of God and the culmination of that work and the climax of everything that begun in the dateless past through to Genesis and beyond the word in terms of the outworking of that which God did in creation and through redemption. It is all about the climax and the finale of history of which the Lamb of God himself is at the heart of this glorious unfolding and fulfilment of God's will. And here we have a passage of scripture. First of all in Revelation 5. Where John has this wonderful picture. Of the heavenly throne room of God. There's incredible order. There's incredible symphony and unity. The elders and the angels. There is the lamb of God. Standing in the midst of the throne. And John saw this lamb. And then he saw those who were gathered around the throne. He saw the one who was seated on the throne. 
And as the vision unfolded, so John was drawn in to the mystery of how God's will really works. Now, prior to that, the question was asked concerning who is open the scroll, who is worthy to loose the seven seals. And the Bible says of John that he wept because no one was found. But then the word of the Lord came to him from the elder. There is one who is worthy. He is the Lamb of God. It is Jesus himself. He is the one who is worthy. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David has conquered. So therefore, John, weep no more. And then he goes on to say that John saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So to put it very simply here to say today is that the broken man saw the broken lamb. And that's how it works, isn't it? Through his tears, he saw the triumph of the cross. Through the brokenness, the questions, the uncertainty, suddenly the clarity of God's word unfolded in his midst. And he became aware of the truth that it was Jesus himself. And there's something powerful about seeing things differently when we see through the veil of tears. Sometimes it takes us to a broken place in order for us to understand God's infinite will and purpose. And sometimes it's only through our own humility and brokenness that suddenly our perspective changes. Certainly that was true for John, as indeed it is for us here today. But here we have the word of the Lord. But the passage that I find challenging, yes, it talks about the Lamb of God, but in chapter 6, it talks about this incredible sense of unity, not around faith, but rather around unbelief. It talks about all of these noble people, the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, slave and free, crying out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is not born out of unbelief or ignorance or blindness. It's an intentional act of defiance. But it's as though those who are crying actually understand something of God. They understand something of the Lamb of God himself. They understood something of what was taking place. But even in the midst of all that was going on, they still refused to repent. And that is the tragedy. And we find it so clearly written in Scripture how very often God will act, he will move, and yet people still refuse to come and repent, to turn away from their sins. They'd rather be crushed by the rocks and the boulders than actually face up to God himself. They'd sooner face judgment than come to the Lord in humility. And as we understand something of this, what is the mystery of this is that it is the Lamb of God himself. We don't very often equate lambs with judgment. We tend to see lions more as those who are ferocious against sin. But actually the mystery of revelation is that God says one thing, but then the mystery of it means that we have to see it from a different perspective because what seems to be obvious isn't as clear as what we'd originally thought. 
God is not looking to confuse us or in any way catch us off guard. But what he wants us to do is enter into the mystery of his will. So the lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. And both work together in the outworking of the justice and the judgment of God. Now let me just say one or two other things. Because very often when people look at the Bible, they read the Old Testament... And then they read the New Testament and think, hang on a minute. As I read the pages of the Old Testament, God seems to be very angry with people. People are getting slain, tribes put to the sword, nations are brought to the ground, earthquakes kill people. It's as if God is very angry with everybody. Whereas if you come to the New Testament, Jesus says things like, well, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Has God changed his mind? It seems to me that the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that very often is one of the questions that people very often ask. They kind of think, why did God say to people like Joshua, you've got to put tribes to the sword, and yet you come to the New Testament and it's love and grace and mercy? Has God changed his mind? Well, the answer is very clearly, no, he hasn't. God's character is consistent throughout the Bible from the Old to the New Testament. And as we read the book of Revelation, we see very clearly that the righteousness and the justice of God reaches its full measure. Now, Why is it therefore that in the Old Testament it's all very much the wrath of God, whereas under the New Testament we're told it's all about grace and mercy? Well, there's a number of answers to that question. One of them is what we find in the Old Testament is that sin is revealed as being utterly sinful. God uses people to execute his judgment. God intervenes and raises up nations to punish other nations. It's all laid bare. God is working. It's painful, but it speaks of the righteous indignation against sin that the Lord has. But we come to the New Testament. So has God's wrath and his justice been swept under the carpet? Absolutely not. Because when we understand the cross, God is now working in terms of salvation and redemption, whereby upon the Lord himself, Jesus our Saviour, the wrath of God is poured out. It's called penal substitution. Jesus takes upon himself the punishment that was ours by nature. Jesus bears upon his own life the justice of God. So under the Old Testament... God is working through nations and individuals and people are punished and the wrath of the Lord is revealed. But on the cross, the full measure of God's righteous anger against sin is poured out. Now that's a mystery. So the righteousness of God is perfectly revealed and the justice of God is perfectly satisfied and the law of God is perfectly fulfilled. So as you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of grace in the Old Testament And there's also a lot of law in the new. And we come to the book of Revelation and we find that here we have the final display 
against the nations of God's righteousness. We read various passages in the Bible that support much of what I've said. It talks about the fact that God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Even though we were objects of God's wrath, God made us alive. For example, Exodus talks about something of the character of God in chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It doesn't say that God doesn't get angry. It means that God is slow to anger. In other words, the anger of God is not like some kind of random act of road rage where suddenly he's got a smile on his face one minute and then something happens and he just loses his temper. It doesn't work like that. There is a season. That's why God doesn't want anyone to perish. A day is a thousand years. A thousand years are a day. Why? So that men might come to repentance. When God spoke in the days of Noah about judgment upon the world, he said, I'm going to give a timeline here. I'm going to give mankind 120 years, during which time the ark is built, Noah's the preacher, the grace of God is evident. There was a timeline, God set in motion a plan. But he was slow to anger. But there comes a time when God says, now is the day when judgment will come. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Peter talks about this also in Second Peter where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards all, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is an incredible truth that we need to understand. We come to the book of Revelation and we learn of a number of ways in which God shows what we could describe as his wrath, his anger. It's in the era of judgment, Revelation 2 and verse 16. To one of the churches, God says, well, the Lord speaks to the elder. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Often God removes his presence. In Revelation 2 and verse 5 to the church in Ephesus, the Lord would say, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your candlestick or the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now this is the new covenant. These are churches. Jesus says, I'm going to come and remove the candlestick. That symbol of my divine life and presence will be removed from you. Paul in Romans talks about the fact that very often a sign of God's wrath, his anger, is that he hands people over to the sin that they choose to commit. Romans 1 and verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verse 24 of the same chapter, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies amongst themselves. So when it says the wrath of God is being revealed, not was or will be, but is, how is that seen? Well, the answer that Paul gives us is very clear. God 
gave them up. When people give up on God, God ultimately, not immediately, but ultimately, will give up on them. And the sign of his displeasure and his wrath is that he allows society to do what it chooses to do. He takes the brakes off society. That's what he did. This is what Paul talks about. He gave them up. We need to live in holy fear, friends. Grace and mercy abound, yes, and mercy triumphs over judgment. But this is the word of the Lord to the church. And if God did not spare those who sinned under the Old Testament, how much more are we held to account in the lives that we live? But we live our lives in the knowledge that God has saved us. He has called us out of darkness. He's called us to live a new life. A life that reflects and demonstrates the truth of God's word. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that we are to worship God because he is a consuming fire. And it's this aspect of the character of God that very often gets lost in all our charismania and all our modern church style and all of that. We want God to be a best friend, a buddy. Now, that is true. God sticks closer than a friend. But at the end of the day, he's also a consuming fire. And we must never trifle with the word of God or tamper with the grace of God. We need to be a people who walk in humility and in readiness of faith, understanding that we'll all give an account before the Lord on that day concerning the lives that we have led. So let us move on. I realise that often these truths are not easy to understand or take to heart. But I believe that the word of the Lord would remind us here today. That God's grace is upon us. But there's coming a day when God will work as indeed he has worked. The cross being the centre of that wonderful act of salvation. But the Bible warns us. That God will have the final word. He will have the final word. In terms of this planet. He is the Lord of history. All nations will have to stand before him. And we find this clearly taught. The nations are gathered before him. Either to be blessed. Or to be judged. That will be a fearful day. And we need to understand this. The day is coming when this will take place. Whether or not it's in our lifetime or not, we don't know. But the Bible is very clear that we are to live our lives in readiness for that day. So therefore the question that we need to ask is how does the church reflect and act upon these truths? Well, let me just say number one. As we focus on the Lamb of God here today. As we look to him, our Lord and Saviour. The Lamb of God is the shepherd of the flock of God. We are called to follow him. Revelation 14 and verse 4 says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. 
for God and the Lamb. Revelation 7 and verse 17 says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Echoes of Psalm 23. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So the mystery of the outworking of God's will, as we understand it recorded in this wonderful prophecy, is that the Lamb of God is in fact the shepherd of the sheep. Now very often, lambs are the ones who have to be looked after. It's the lambing season at the moment, isn't it? So if you're a farmer, then the lambs are being born and they're vulnerable They're frail, they have to be cared for. But in the context of John's vision, he saw that the Lamb of God is in fact the shepherd of the flock of God. And it is said of those who have not defiled themselves with women, another passage talking about the purity of those who walk in faith, that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We're called to follow Jesus, aren't we? Not a denomination, not a committee. Not man-made rules and regulations. We're called to follow Jesus. Guess what? We're called to follow Jesus wherever he goes. It doesn't say that the Lamb follows us and we lead the way and decide what he will do. Wherever the Lamb goes, we are called to follow in his footsteps. These are those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. Like I've said, echoes of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Friends, this is the challenge. This is the heartbeat of this prophecy. It is all about the Lord himself. The Lamb of God is the shepherd of the flock of God. We are therefore called to follow him. Hallelujah. Jesus said it like this. He says, if you want to become my disciple, you've got to first of all deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. We can't follow him unless, number one, we have denied ourselves. And number two, we have taken up our cross. And the cross, as John would understand it, would be the means of grace whereby the lamb would be slain and the salvation of the world would be assured as that gift is given by grace. Take up your cross. Humble yourself. Lay aside all weight and sin. And then you follow him. And maybe there's a sense to which, as we seek to follow him, so therefore we are empowered to live lives that are worthy of that calling that we have received. It's his presence in our lives that equips us to do the will of God. The Lamb of God is the shepherd of the flock of God. And that's what we need to understand. That's what the truth of God's word would remind us of here today secondly the lamb of God spelling mistake sorry is the object of our devotion we are called to worship him revelation 5 and verse 12 says 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. This is a repeated frame, isn't it? A recurring chorus, a recurring anthem of praise found within the book itself. That Jesus alone is the object of our worship. Yes, we worship the Father in spirit and in truth, but actually Jesus is the means by which, by the Holy Spirit, that our praise and our worship is presented before the Father. Even this incense speaks of the glorious prayers of the saints that eternally arises before the throne of God and in his presence. But we are to called here to worship the Lord who was slain, who receives the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the might and the honour and the glory and blessing. It doesn't get any better than this, does it? Let's be a people who gather around the throne of God. And our focus and our affections are towards the Lord and to him alone. The Lamb of God is the object of our devotion. We are called to worship him. The book of Revelation is probably one of the greatest stimulants to worship we find in the Bible, along with the Psalms. That's why we mustn't get sidetracked by issues which aren't central to the theme of the prophecy. It's very easy to get bogged down. Well, the Antichrist, oh, thousand-year reign of Christ. We have this, we have that, we have the other. These are the outworking of what God has determined. This is what happens when the Lamb of God moves and the seals are broken around the scroll. It is the Lord himself who is working in history. And our worship is to reflect who he is and that's why we worship him we worship him because of who he is we worship him because of where he is in heaven we worship him because of what he has done he has saved us and has called us out of darkness all this and more this is why the word of the lord is the greatest stimulus to active and prophetic worship it's not your feelings or your emotions as you are drawn into the text so our hearts should be awakened to the truth of what we read Thirdly, the Lamb of God is the conquering King. We are called to serve him. Revelation 17 and verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's you. So this morning, this is what God says over your life. You're called, you're chosen, and you're faithful. And the battle belongs to the Lord. They make war on the Lamb. So how does that work? Very often, when people want to get to Jesus to attack him, as Paul did, or Saul of Tarsus, what they do is they attack his people. No wonder Paul would hear the words from Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was going around getting letters of authorization to drag Christians off to prison. But Jesus took that personally and said to Saul, why do you persecute me? And then the rest is history. They make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Yes, the church will, I believe, go through persecution. 
but the Lord is the conquering king. That is the hope that we have here today. He is the Lord of history. The Lord of lords and the king of kings. And we are those who are with him. And he says of us, we are called and chosen and faithful. The Lamb of God is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The suffering servant is also the splendid king. And we are called to serve him. And today that is our prayer. That we as God's people may be captivated by the truth of God's word. But also realise that if the book of Revelation is a stimulus for worship, it's also a stimulus for mission. If we believe that there is coming a day when God will step back in and there will be an incredible display of his power and the nations will have to stand before him. If that doesn't motivate mission for the church to get out and reach the world, then I don't know what will. And maybe it'll take persecution to get the church out of its comfort zones and into the highways and the byways to reach the people that the Lamb has died for and given his blood for. If the book of Revelation doesn't stimulate mission, then what are we doing? Well, the fact of the matter is, it is a handbook for evangelism. If as we read these passages, we're not gripped for a sense to which we have to reach. We have to be God's mouthpiece. We have to make disciples of nations. This is the call of God upon our lives. God doesn't call us to a holy huddle. He calls us to a mission. He calls us to action. He calls us to outreach. By and through the power of his spirit and for the glory and the honour of the Lamb that was slain. Who is the King? Who is the Lord? But he's more than a king. He's the king of kings. He's more than a Lord. He's the Lord of lords. And we are called, we are chosen, and we are faithful. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you, O God, for today. We thank you, O God, for your word. And we pray that as we have read your word, that it might in some way awaken in our hearts a real sense of your purpose. Bless this word to our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.